this morning. Let's go to Matthew, the 11th chapter, Matthew chapter 11. I heard David Lee Martin say something this week that, that I think really fits in with what we've been studying together. Um, he said that God is still an agricultural God in a mechanical and digital world. He's still an agricultural God in a mechanical and digital world. It's not that God's opposed to mechanical and digital because, again, every piece of machinery that's ever been invented that's made our lives better, uh, the idea for that came from God. He gives knowledge of witty inventions. Now, a lot of times people take credit for the things that they come up with without ever acknowledging God in those areas. But again, all these advancements in, in technology, they're, they're tools. Now, obviously, the devil tries to use those tools. It's like the Internet. You know, we're, we're sending the gospel around the world this morning via the Internet. Um, but then also we know the devil tries to use that to advance his causes and, and, and different things as well. But one of the key reasons that God is, a, is an agricultural God, even in a digital mechanical push-button world, is <clears throat> that he's a God of process. Um, and the process is important to God. I'm going to say that again. The process is important to God. We sometimes focus more on the results and, 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 and instead of the process that, that gets the results. But if you let God teach you process, you'll never have another problem with getting the results that you need uh, for the rest of your life. Um, in my book, Becoming a Threat to Addiction, we, we talk about the little foxes that spoil the vines out of, out of the Old Testament. And the, um, <clears throat> the grapes on a vine represent, again, the benefit. They represent the results. Uh, but all that's involved in, in planting, growing, pruning, uh, developing, and maturing that vine is the process. And a lot of times we will commit ourselves to a process for change in our lives until we start to experience change. And then we quite often take our eyes off the process and start to focus on what I call the progress. Amen. So God is a God of progress. Don't misunderstand me. Um, but he wants you to understand that progress comes through his ways of doing things, his, his predetermined process, also known as his wisdom. And so we see, I know you're in Matthew 11. I just want to remind you because we're going to bring these verses back up again this morning. Proverbs 16 and 3 tells us to commit our works to the Lord and our thoughts will be established. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. That verse, like, you know, every Bible verse for that matter, but that verse has so much truth and understanding in it. And so, we're, again, we're going to do a little more unpacking on it. Psalm 37 and 5, he says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So we see in these verses, and of course other places as well, where, where God is inviting us into a commitment to him, to make a commitment to him. He's in these two verses, he's saying, commit your works and your ways to the Lord. And we see that some very powerful things will happen when we do that. When we commit our works and ways to the Lord, first and foremost, our thoughts will be established. And that is so vitally, so critically important. But we also see that when we commit our works and ways to the Lord, that facilitates our ability to trust in him. So for some time now, we've been on the subject learning to trust God. And we said that that trusting him is, is of the utmost importance, but it's something we have to learn to do. It's something we have to learn to do. And that's why, again, he's a God of process, because it's the process that teaches us 
to trust him. As we said last Sunday, he could have teleported uh, the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. Um, but that would have been a disaster because they, don't, they wouldn't have known how to trust God. And if you're going to thrive and, and flourish in, in your best life, the life that God has for you to live, it's going to require you learning how and knowing how to trust him. So we see that once we commit our works and ways to the Lord, our thoughts are established, our ability to trust in him uh, is, is amplified through that. And then we see where he says in verse 5 of Psalm 37, and he, God, will bring it to pass. So there's so many things that, that we want, I want, you want, we need God to bring to pass in our lives that only he can do. Um, but sometimes we try to, again, go to the mechanical and the digital and the push button. We just want to say a few things, make a few confessions, give it to God, you know, without really understanding or committing ourselves to his process. This is one of my favorite process verses, and I got a lot of them. He says that when you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. Amen. Think about that right there. When you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that brings us then to what I believe is a New Testament counterpart to these Old Testament verses. We don't really find the words commit and trust here, but they're definitely here in, uh, in the way that they're spelled out. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is none other than the master himself, Jesus himself speaking. He's inviting you and me, anyone, whosoever will come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a period there, so full stop. Then he begins a new thought um, related to the first one, but one is not, how do I say this? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. He didn't say, take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Right? So this is not, you got to do this in order for God to give you this. That's, that's not how he operates. Everything that, that, that God has given to us, that he desires for you to have, it comes by way of gift. It, it's, it's not something that you earn. It's not something that he will ever owe you. But it's something that he has uh, already desired for you to have and, and has freely given to you. Amen. So when he says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that's exactly what happens when you come to him. He gives you rest. Then he extends another invitation to you. The second invitation is once you've come to him and he's given you rest, for you to take his yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we've talked about this for years around here. If you're, if you're new to, to us teaching on this passage, there's a pattern here that applies to anything and everything that God desires to do in your life. He says, come and I'll give, learn and you'll find. Come and I'll give, learn and you'll find. So receiving from God is more about a discovery process than an earning process. Amen. I tell folks when they make that discipleship class commitment, that first class, I say, listen, discipleship is not about becoming something you aren't it's not about becoming something you are not discipleship is about discovering who you became the day you became a new creation in christ jesus so it's all about discovery it's all about uh when he says uh learn from me and you will find rest that word find there is about this whole discovery process that is our daily walk with the lord he goes on to say my yoke is easy and my burden is light now, what we've established in Scripture is that we all have 
a yoke to wear and a burden to carry. And the one that we were designed for is the one that God designed us for and the one that he has for us. It's literally the life that God created you and me to live. And we weren't created to just lay around. We were created to be productive. We were created to be fruitful. We were created, uh, our God is a conquering spirit. We were created to conquer. We were created to advance. We were created to win. And I can prove that to you because nobody in this room enjoys losing. So all of these things, and listen, if that's true in this life, please, you know, we don't know, I don't even think half of what God has prepared for us in, in the life that is to come, in the next life. But one thing that we know about the next life, what's beyond this life, amen, um, is that we will continue to grow. We will continue to, to advance. We will continue to develop. Um, we, we even see in the parables that Jesus taught us that, that there are those among us who will be rewarded with cities, with cities, cities to be managed, cities, cities to be stewarded, cities to be, to be developed and advanced and, 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 and ran. Um, so this idea that we're just going to lay around on a, on a cloud um, and, and strum a harp and, and, and hum new songs to Jesus for the next 10 million years, my friend, that, that, is, a, that is Hollywood's concept of, of heaven. Um, this is what we were created for. This is, what, this is who our God is. Amen. And, and, and so this whole process of, of learning and discovering, you were created uh, to, to produce effort. You were, you were created um, to bear a burden and to wear a yoke. Um, but see, remember what we said about trusting God. The, the more we try to get away from dependence upon him, the more dependent we become on other things, on other people. And when we start slipping our neck in that yoke, and we start carrying those burdens. See, now we're in a yoke and we're carrying burdens that we were never designed by God. We were never created by God to carry. Those are the heavy burdens. Those are the miserable yokes. Amen. And so when he invites us to take his yoke, amen, he's not saying, look, you can take my yoke or just go the rest of your life without a yoke. No, you're going to wear a yoke. You're going to pull a plow. Amen. Um, you can either pull his or you can pull yours or you can pull somebody else's. Um, but I'm telling you, his is the one you were created for. And his is the one that will give you life, not drain you, not, not take life from you. Now, I know it's obvious, but the word take cannot be overlooked here. When Jesus invites us to take his yoke, take my yoke, Jesus um, offers his yoke to everyone who comes to him, but actually taking it means a choice and, again, a commitment on your part. You know, if, if, if I said to, to, you know, somebody in here, hey, take this, I mean, you can look at me like, I don't want that, I don't know what that is. Or you can actually lay hold of it and take it. And I know that's a real simple way of illustrating it, but Jesus is offering it. When he says to take it, um, he's not going to force it on you. He's not going to make you uh, wear it. He's not going to force you. Um, to take his yoke upon yourself, um, but he's offering it to you. He's offering it to you. So again, to go back to some of the things that, that we talked about last week, to let go and to let God is, is a religious uh, fallacy. It, 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 the Bible does not teach let go and let God. And if you understand what a yoke is, you'll see how ridiculous it is to say, I'm going to let go and let God. God's offering you a yoke. 
The yoke doesn't mean let go. The yoke means come alongside and let him lead you through it. The yoke means come alongside and let him show you the way to live victoriously in your life. Not Jesus take the wheel and you get over in the passenger seat and sleep until he you know, blows the horn and wakes you up in your promised land. This is, this, is, this, this is not how any of this works. But yet religion you know, has developed these little sayings that, that sound like Bible verses, but, but, or they may have a portion of one Bible verse out of context in it. But th this, is, this is not how um, any of this works. So actually taking the yoke that Jesus is offering means a choice and a commitment on your part. You see, we've said this a few times already, and I don't mind saying it again because I think it, it bears repeating. You know, the whole idea of commitment means that we're um, limiting our options and restricting our freedom. And so that's one of the reasons why we're so reluctantly to commit to anything. Because we like to keep our options open and we like to be free to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it, whenever we feel like doing it. See, the, a, a yoke flies in the face of that. A yoke speaks of, of effort on your part and my part. A yoke speaks of um, not you know, plowing anywhere we want to plow when we feel like plowing it. That, Jesus' yoke is headed in a, in, a, in a very specific direction, and he's inviting you to go along with him. Um, and, and so you know, this, this whole idea of taking the yoke means more than just something you say but it's a commitment that you make. And so this brings us back. I want you to notice, we said earlier that the word trust you don't find here, but it's certainly implied here. So this is a simple question, but I want you to think about it. Do you trust Jesus enough to take his yoke? Because a yoke, if you understand what it is, it, it can be very scary, especially to your flesh. I mean, your flesh doesn't like any idea of a commitment and obligating ourselves and devoting ourselves to a specific course of action. Now, we, we like to keep, again, as I said, our, option, our options open and available. So taking Jesus' yoke um, involves commitment, but see, this brings us back to the, the connection between commitment and trust, commitment and trust. Let me say it another way. Do you trust him enough to do things? Remember, commit your work to the Lord. So doing things is work. Do you, do you trust Jesus enough to do things, work, his way? Commit your works, commit your ways to the Lord. Now, the word learn in this verse, it comes from the Greek word manthano. And the word manthano, it doesn't come from, it is the word, excuse me. It is the word manthano. And that's a word you've heard if you've been around heritage for very long. And this word manthano, it means to put forth an intense effort to learn by experience. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's saying, take my yoke upon you and put forth an intense effort to learn by experience from me. Are you seeing this? To learn by experience from me. This word manthano, by the way, is root word for our English words disciple and discipleship. In the Greek, a methetria or a methetes, again, derivatives of manthano, they are gender-specific male disciple or female disciple in the Greek language. Now, here's another very important part of this verse, and it's, it's one word, but it's an important word, and it's the word from. Learning about Jesus is not the same as learning from Jesus. 
This, is, this has been a mistake that, that I think people have made. In Hebrews 5, in verse 12, when he talks about people who've been in church long enough to, to lead and train and teach other people, but they still need somebody to, um, to teach them the basics, and they've come to need milk uh, instead of solid meat because they're as spiritual babies when they should be as spiritual adults. I think this is part of the problem um, with, with those people in their day and with the same kind of people in our day is that we know uh, we've learned a lot about Jesus, but we've never learned much of anything from him. And, and, there, and there's a, there's a, you say, well, what's the difference here, Pastor Mark? All the, all the difference in the world. So you, you, can, you can learn about, um, I don't know, uh, you know, some sports star, some entertainment star, some movie star, some whatever. You, you can learn all about them. That's completely different from you uh, knowing them, having, having relationship, fellowship with them, and, and them actually, you know, teaching you um, things that they know. So we, we've, we've come to a place, in our, even in our world, not just in the church, but in the world, where, where people know about Jesus, but they've, they've never learned from him. I guess one of the key differences between learning about and learning from is that learning from involves actually spending time with. It, it actually involves um, a close connection to. Uh, and that, that, of course, again, is, is um, typified, exemplified, whatever, um, by a yoke. Because a yoke is, again, a farm implement that joins the forces of two uh, oxen together. It brings them in close proximity to one another, and uh, the idea is that the older, wiser uh, ox would be uh, yoked together with the, the younger ox so that the younger ox could learn from the older, more mature, more experienced ox. And that's the, again, agricultural God <laughs> in a digital mechanical age. We, you know, we, we, um, you know, we understand plowing now as big, green John Deere tractors with air-conditioned cabs and you know, all this stuff. It, it, it was completely different in uh, Jesus' day and time. So, discipleship, again, is learning from Jesus as you walk with him through life. It's learning from him as you walk with him through life. Now, I know this isn't you, but I, I just want to say it's very sad to me that there are so many of God's people that the only time they even give him a place in their lives is on Sunday mornings. I, I pray that you learn and every time that you leave here something from the Word of God and or something from the Holy Spirit has, has you know, spoken to your heart, has opened your understanding, has, has given you fresh light and perspective and, and helped to renew and recondition your minds. Man, that, that, is, that is my prayer. Um, but even more so, and I, I know that sounds strange, but even more so, um, I, I pray that you learn something on Monday morning when it's just you and Jesus on the way to work or school. Or, or Are you following what I'm saying? He, he wants to be invited into your life. That's what it means to take my yoke. It's, it's, it's doing life together um, with him. So there's different things that we say about discipleship. We, we've taught on it around here for, for many, many years. Um, but another thing that we see, like, let me, let me show you, discipleship is both of these things. First of all, 
I mentioned this a moment ago. Discipleship is finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you why it's so important to learn that from Jesus? It's because you were born of his seed. The Bible says that as he is, so are we in this world. We search the world over trying to find our identity. And the way most people look for their identity is they try to find people they can identify with. People who may have the same interest or people who may have the same um, uh, you know, type personality or people they can relate to on some level. And, and this is how so many people are desperately trying to understand their identity. And let me tell you, you, you were created in the image and likeness of God himself. You, you were created um, to be as Jesus is to our Heavenly Father. He created you to be conformed into the image of His Son. So do you see now why His Son says, hey, come here and, and let, me, let me get you some peace. Let me, let me make some of this craziness stop in your life. And let me give you rest. And then, then here, let's, if you're willing to take this next, next step, take my yoke upon you and let's do life together. Um, because you were created before Adam ever breathed oxygen in this atmosphere, my father had predetermined that you would be conformed into my image. So why don't you take my yoke upon you and let's do life together so I can teach you who you really are, so I can teach you how you were really meant to live, so I can teach you how to have authority over the devil, so I can teach you how to live above sin, so I can teach you how to have the right answer in every situation in life. See, th th this is what it means to take his yoke upon yourself and to learn from him, to learn from him. So again, discipleship is finding out who you became the day you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. But let me tell you what else discipleship also is. Discipleship is also an uncommon commitment. Now we're pulling from you know, two different stacks of stuff here because one is like, yeah, who, my identity, this is so important. And, and, and so we could even maybe look at that as, as being one of the, the key benefits of discipleship. But in addition to all these spiritual things that we could say discipleship is, we can't overlook that discipleship is an uncommon commitment. I've defined it this way in the past. A disciple is someone who gives God and his word place in their lives others are not willing to give him. Amen. You see, Jesus said to people who believed on him, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed. Just because someone has been born again does not mean they've taken the yoke of Jesus upon themselves to learn from him. I know it's getting quiet up in here, but that, that's just a reality. This idea that every, you know, we sing at the top of our lungs, I am a friend of God, that's not necessarily the case. That doesn't mean God doesn't want to be your friend, but we see in Scripture that there's pretty specific standards for being called a friend of God. And it's not just, you know, giving him a few hours of your time a month. It's, it's, there's more to it than that, right? He stands at the door and knocks. And we've made that into a salvation Scripture, but that's, that's not accurate. He's knocking on the door of the church to see if anybody would like to go grab lunch. Read it there in Revelation. He's knocking on the door of the church. The church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. He's seeing if anybody would be willing to make an uncommon commitment to him and include him in their lunch plans. He said, come on and go with me and we'll, we'll sit down and have a meal together. See, this is learning from Jesus. 
This is learning from Jesus. How many times have we been guilty of thanking him for the food, but then sending him on back out to the car while we do our own thing for the rest of the meal? Never include him in the conversation. Never. Are you following what I'm saying? Some people ask me where I went to Bible school. I, I went to Holy Ghost University, but let me, let me tell you where I learned a whole bunch of what I know today, sitting around my parents' dining room table. Because the Lord was a welcome guest at every meal we've ever had, and, and when we get together this Thanksgiving, he, He'll be right there with us. And we'll learn from Him. Do you, do, you, do you see the difference there, right? Amen. 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 A disciple is someone who gives God and his word place in their lives. Others are not willing to give him. So I want you to think of it, and I may be way oversimplifying this, but I want you to think of it this way. Come and I will give you rest is referring to the work of salvation in a man or a woman's life. This, this is where a man or a woman, Jesus said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever, right? So the, that's the invitation. Come and... Um, and I'll give you rest. This is referring to salvation, the work of salvation, and the new birth. And we know that it's not our body that's born again. It's not our soul that's born again. It's our spirit that's born again. Jesus explained this in great detail to Nicodemus and to us when he had that conversation with him so many years ago. He said, look, what's born of the flesh is flesh, but I'm not talking about your flesh being born again here. I'm talking about your spirit, your spirit being born again and made completely new. So he says, come and I'll give you rest. This is referring to salvation and the new birth. This is when our spirits are born again and made new. This is that new creation that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. But then he says, take my yoke and learn from me. This is referring to discipleship. This is referring to the renewing of the mind. This process corresponds to our soul and to our thinking. This is why the Bible speaks of your salvation in three different tenses. The Bible says you have been saved. The same Bible says you are being saved. And the same Bible says you shall be, you will be saved. The part of you that is a, is a completed work, if you've been born again, is your spirit has been made new and has become one with God's spirit. That has been, you have been saved. Our being saved is speaking of the, the work of discipleship. Th this is where you're learning from Jesus. This is where the Holy Spirit is leading you and guiding you into all truth. This is where he's showing you who you are. He's teaching you how to live like you created, he created you to live. So remember, your soul was not born again. That is a progressive, ongoing work that, again, can be expedited to the extent that you're willing to cooperate and participate in it, or it can slow to a, to a halt altogether if, if you're not willing to give God a place in your life that other people uh, may be willing to give him. I reference you back to Hebrews 5 and 12. People have been in the church for decades, but they're still spiritual babies. Not because they don't come to church, but because they've never taken Jesus' yoke upon themselves. See, he didn't say they were unknowledgeable in the word there in Hebrews 5 and 12. He said they were unskilled. He didn't say they didn't know about it. He said they didn't know how to do it. See, the doing is, is commit your works to the Lord, commit your ways to the Lord, not just commit a little time to learn about. See, that's, that's a different commitment all together. So taking the yoke and learning from Jesus, it's referring to discipleship and the renewing of the mind, 
And this process, uh, this process corresponds to our soul and our thinking. So let me see if I can just summarize what we've just said. It's based on this verse and, of course, a whole slew of other ones, okay? It's one thing to be born again. It's another thing to live like someone who's been born again. There are a lot of born-again people who aren't yet experiencing and enjoying the born-again life. So that doesn't make sense to me, Pastor Mark. Well, just hang, hang in here with me for a few more minutes. Let me say it another way. It's one thing to be an heir of God and join heir with Jesus. And if you've been born again, you are both of those. But it's another thing altogether to experience and enjoy your inheritance. One thing to be born again, it's one thing to be given rest. Remember, we've, we've, we've taught on this for, you know, for some time now, but R-E-S-T, that four-letter word, rest, it, it basically uh, summarizes everything Jesus came to do in your life came to give you rest amen he came to give you rest the bible says there there remains a place of rest and he goes in hebrews the fourth chapter he 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 connects it back to the children of israel and how god brought them out of egypt but that first generation he was unable to bring them into their promised land because what they failed to enter into their rest the rest again represented the, the, their best life, the, the, the destiny that God had given to them uh, through their father Abraham. But they never entered into it. They never experienced it. They, it was theirs. It was theirs. It belonged to them. But they never experienced it, and they never enjoyed it. Right? It's because of their disobedience. But literally, if you look closely at those words and break them down, it was because they didn't trust God. They did not trust Him. And God can only take you as far as your trust in Him will allow. So we've made a statement. I don't, um, I don't have it in my notes right here, but let me just remind you. And I know it's a strong statement. I, I, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit has me say things to, to you uh, for the same reason He says them to me. Is it, it's, it's to get us thinking, right? Um, and so the statement is, nothing in this Bible that applies to you personally is automatic. We, we've got to go after it. We've got to receive it by faith. We've got to, to pursue it and, and, and walk in it and walk it out, right? Even your salvation, you, 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 unless you call upon the name of the Lord, you won't receive the salvation that has been provided for every, every person, right? But then after people have been saved, he says to what? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about you making some side deal with God. He's talking about the inward reality of the new birth becoming an outward expression of life. So living like someone who is born again requires thinking like someone who's born again. Again, not everyone who's born again lives like someone who's born again. It doesn't mean they're not born again. And I know the question maybe that's under a lot of people's breath right now. I don't mind asking it. I don't have the, the, the six hours it would take to show it to you from the scriptures, but I promise you it's in there, right? Well, does that mean that person won't go to heaven? Absolutely they'll go to heaven. Absolutely they'll go to heaven. If you're a father's child, you're going to heaven. If you've been born again, you're his son or daughter, and if you're a son or daughter, you abide in father's house forever. It's just that simple. I know that irritates a lot of people, and they get confused about have been, are being, will be saved. And again, I'm not here to teach on that, and I'm certainly not here to make you angry or offend you this morning. But that's absolutely what it means. But remember, it's more than just getting to heaven one day when you die. 
there's so much more going on here. I don't know if you've listened yet to, uh, I keep mentioning it because I just feel like there's some folks that need to see this and watch this. Maybe over the Thanksgiving break, you'll pull it up on YouTube and watch to, uh, YouTube and watch uh, Jesse Duplantis, My Testimony of Heaven. In, in that testimony, guess who he saw in heaven? It's going to probably freak a lot of folks out. Guess who he saw in heaven? He saw JFK. He saw him in heaven. He said, I know that's going to probably bother a lot of people. He didn't, that's the first time he's revealed that because there's still things the Lord showed him there that he hasn't been given permission to say. I think one of the reasons why the Lord gave him permission to reveal it this time when he shared all of this is for us to understand. You think, wait a second, man. He was this, he was, oh, now you remember what we've been talking about on Wednesday night. Now you can't, can't go judging folks, not your place, right? Getting quiet up in here, that's all right. But living like someone who was born again, just because you're born again don't mean you're living like somebody who's born again. Living like someone who's born again requires thinking like someone who's born again. Now, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, he talks about um, three categories of people. He talks about people who are natural, he talks about people who are carnal, and he talks about people who are spiritual. To simplify it, a natural man or woman is someone who has never been born again, and the Bible says the things of God are foolishness to that man or woman. Someone who is carnal is someone who has been born again, but for the most part still thinks like someone who has not been. They think a carn, carnal, carny is referring to the flesh, so they're, they're carnally minded. They're, they're, they think more um, you know, in, a, in agreement with and in alignment with the flesh instead of their born-again spirit. Then the third category is the ones that he refers to as spiritual. And those who are spiritual are men and women who've been born again and for the most part think like someone who has been born again. So the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, what so is he? So this brings me to, amen, I just glanced at the clock. Are you still with me this morning? Everybody good? Somebody reminded me how long everyone stayed on Pastor Appreciation Day a couple of weeks ago. And they said, see, you could, you could keep us longer and we wouldn't go anywhere. So no amens on that. Okay, all right. I thought at least the man who said it would say amen. You got a few more minutes. Let me try to get to at least this. Let me get at least my introduction out this morning. All right. Let's go back to the verse. Okay. Proverbs 16 and 3. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. If you've been born again, if you've been born again, the threat to your destiny is not the devil. It's your flesh and your established thoughts. Now your spirit, right, has been born again. It's a completed work. Your soul is where your established thoughts reside. And then your flesh, the Bible talks about the desires and the lusts of the flesh. And, and so many times, you know, pastors get in pulpits and they rail against fleshly behavior, fleshly living, sinful living, carnal living, without ever connecting 
that as long as we're carnally minded, we're going to behave carnally. As long as we think like someone who's not been born again, we're going to live like somebody who's not been born again, even though we have been born again. So it comes back to what the Bible calls your established thoughts. I'm not trying to undercut the importance of our salvation, but nothing influences your life reality more than your established thoughts. Now, listen very carefully to that. Don't, don't, don't get outside of the exact verbiage that I used because to say nothing um, influences uh, your eternity more than your established thoughts would not be correct. Nothing influences your eternity more than whether or not you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Okay? And the Bible says if you have been, then you've passed from death to life. That if you have not uh, received that gift of salvation, that the wrath of God still abides on you. And you'll die in your sins if you don't. I mean, again, that's very clear. But I didn't say nothing affects your eternity more than your established thoughts. Although your established thoughts will affect your eternity. But I'm talking about how your life is with you right now, your life reality. Nothing influences your life reality more than your established thoughts. Now, when we say established thoughts, we could, we could also refer to these as automatic thoughts. This is how we've been basically programmed over time to respond, to react. Established thoughts are where the way you've always done it comes from, the way we've always done it. So if something is established, this means it has been in existence for a long time, it's recognized and generally accepted. We're just going to go to a definition. What does it mean for something to be established? An established thought is a thought that's been in existence for a long time. Recognized and generally accepted. Now, here, here is the danger if our established thoughts are not God's thoughts. Established thoughts are the ones we trust the most. Amen. Established thoughts are the ones we will go with every time when the pressure is on when, when, when um, you know, the heat is on and we, we find ourselves in, in the moment, we, we, it's that automatic thought, right? Amen or oh me, it's getting quiet up in here. So the question then, I think, it's very important for us to answer. How do we change our established thoughts? When we, in other words, the verse in Proverbs about committing your works to the Lord and your thoughts being established it, it really will not carry the weight with you that it should carry until and unless you understand the power and the significance of your established thoughts. Let me give you a verse that we have, haven't even gotten to yet, and it's a really important verse on the subject of learning to trust God. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. God will keep the man or woman in perfect peace. How many of you know God doesn't exaggerate? If God is saying he can keep you in perfect peace in a crazy chaotic world, right? This is what we see later in the New Testament, the peace that passes understanding. Meaning what? Peace that passes understanding means you have to, you have to be in the middle of a situation and experience peace when you don't even understand why you're still at peace. Is Jesus asleep in a boat with a, with a storm raging around him? 
chaos, destruction is all around him. He's sound asleep. He's at peace. That don't make sense. He should have gotten, it, it, it made the disciples angry. They woke him up. Do you not care we're about to die? See, they're all in an uproar, right? They're all pressures on, heat's on. Their lives are flashing before their eyes. And notice now what they've reverted back to. Accusing God, blaming God. You don't even care if this, you, you cared about us, Jesus. You wouldn't even got us in this lousy boat. Who do you think you are? I knew I was stupid for following you in the first place. In other words, here it all comes, right? All these established thoughts. Jesus sound asleep. He has peace in the middle of the storm. Doesn't make sense, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have had that peace, have that peace in your life. So he'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on God. Your mind stayed means it's fixed. It's like you set the channel and then you just broke the knob off. You know what I'm saying? See, you see the difference here, all right? So now we hear that verse, it's like, is there benefit in this verse? Absolutely. Is there process associated with this verse? Absolutely. So your mind being fixed on God, being stayed on God, see, this is a skill. Are you, are you following what I'm saying here? This is referring to, guess what, established thoughts. But if our, if, if our thoughts aren't established, we will never keep them fixed on God. Are you? Are you following what I'm saying here? Do you see the connection? Okay, let me land this plane. So, before we can change established thoughts, we need to understand how established thoughts are formed. So remember, we, for something to be established, this means it's been in existence for a long time. And, and this is where we really, really, really have to trust God and His Word because there are a lot of things that we think and believe, right, that, that is... You know, we, again, there's a reason why we say the way we've always done it. It's because these things started before you knew you were in the world. Literally, I mean, they, they started in, in, in your very, very infancy um, and, and have gradually developed and, and in a negative way, obviously, but matured in your life over the course of your life. Now you find yourself, you know, in your teenage years, I don't know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, and you've got all this established thinking in your life. And you don't, you, unless the Lord shows you that it's wrong, you, you think everybody else is wrong. Right? I've been known to say more than once who raised these people. And, and you say who raised these people. So let, let me give you an example of, of when I would say that. You go to, to Sam's Club and they got all the, ta they got all the clothes out on a table. And it looks like somebody put four three-year-olds up there and kicked it and tossed it and turned it and flipped it and made just this huge pile of looks like laundry out of it. And it's supposed to be stacked, you know, where people go up there and look through and find their size and pull it out and go buy it. So you see those workers up there. That I ask them something. I said, do you fold clothes in your sleep? You know, I mean, what in the world, you know? And so the question is, who raised these people? I mean, who? But you realize there's a lot of folks in the world that think there's nothing wrong with that. It's getting quite up in here. It's like, it's like they, somebody's going, you mean there's something wrong with that? This one probably, I have to watch myself on, on judging, you know. It's like when you're, you're walking through the tool aisle and somebody's put a $40 pack of fresh salmon because they didn't want 
to buy it and they were too lazy to carry it back to the refrigerator case and so they stuck it with the crescent wrenches who raised these people i mean who who thinks that's right and okay but i'm just trying to show you some, somewhere along the way you know that was okay i mean it's just established thoughts right i mean i'm trying to end this with you smiling all right before we can change established thoughts, we need to understand how established thoughts were formed. And established thoughts are formed through experiences. I guarantee you they put the salmon with the crescent wrenches because that's what their mama did. All right, stand with me. Praise God. We want to learn from riding what can only be learned from plowing. We want to learn from watching what can only be learned from doing. Might be a sign that I kept y'all too long and everybody starts standing up. And starts. It's like been here six hours or something. Amen. We want to learn from riding what can only be learned from plowing. We want to learn from watching what can only be learned from doing. We want to learn in the classroom what can only be learned in real life situations. When the life reality produced by our established thoughts becomes unbearable, we try and find relief by saying things like, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm going to let go and let God. I'm giving this problem to God. There's two problems with that. The first one is it does nothing to change our established thoughts and our established thoughts are the real problem here. They keep producing the result that we're wanting God to change. And he's trying to change the established thoughts that keep producing the result. Okay? But there's another more subtle problem with this. When we say out of ignorance, Jesus, take the wheel. When we say out of ignorance, I'm going to let go and let God. When we say out of ignorance, I'm giving it to God. When God's trying to give you his yoke. and nothing changes, notice what line of thinking is that establishing in your mind. It's establishing, I gave it to God and He didn't fix it. I, I gave God my wheel and he, he, he steered me right into the mountain. He, you know, see, now it, it, it's actually undermining your ability to trust God because in, in your thinking, I gave Jesus the wheel and He didn't drive me straight to the promised land and so He failed me. I can't trust him. Because <laughs> again, how are, how are established thoughts formed? They're formed through experiences. So when you experience, you know, Jesus in a, in a yoke and you walk around there and hand him a steering wheel and go, you know, get you an ice cream cone, come back three days later and he hadn't done it all for you. Now, see, now he's like, God, I can't trust God. I tried that tithing stuff. God failed me. God, it's having just the complete opposite effect of what he, he's trying to do in your life. Amen. No more Jesus take the wheel. No more let go and let God. Jesus, I'm going to take your yoke. Jesus, I'm going to let go of my way of doing things and me plowing when I want to, the way I want to, and I'm fixing to take hold of your yoke alongside you. You see the difference in all that, right? Amen. Father, thank you for these beautiful men and women. Thank you, Father, for... Even these young people, Father, it just does something to my heart to see these young 
young men and women, Lord, so faithful to your house and to, to learn and pay attention and, and grow. And so, Father, just thank you, Lord, for, for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, help us understand you're for us. You're not against us. You, you are trying to take us to a place we can never get to on our own. But, Lord, I know that um, you have a process that's required to get us there. And so, Lord, we just bless you this morning, and we open up our hearts and minds to receive from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One last thing, one last thing. Holy Spirit prompted me. said, you didn't tell them this, you need to tell them this, okay? We'll explain it more next week, but I don't think it's going to need a lot more of explanation, okay? You can't live in Canaan land with thoughts that were established in Egypt. See? You can't live in Canaan land with thoughts established in Egypt. All right, you're loved. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you for being here this morning. Good things coming for you and for yours. Blessings, blessings, blessings.